you have a sermon insert, you can go ahead and pull that out. We have the joy of kind of looking at a text that has been near and dear to my heart, life, and ministry um, for a long time now. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. This is, uh, if you're new to New City, we usually pick a book of the Bible and work our way slowly through it, taking chunks of it at a time and and, and studying it. This will feel more like a topical sermon, though it's going to come deeply out of this text that's been important to me because I thought this would be a great way to end 2023 and to start a new year, which is crazy to think about. That's tomorrow, 2024, another year. And so we're looking, I, I titled this The Necessity of Encouragement, because that's exactly what I want us to end this year recognizing and hopefully fueled in encouraged to go into a new year understanding the necessity of encouragement for your soul and for the souls of other people in your life. And so with that, Hebrews 3 verses 12 through 14 will be our launching pad to study this together. Um, and as is our custom here at New City, would you stand one more time for the reading of God's word? I'm just going to read all three verses for us before we jump in. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, the most sold book in all of history is the scriptures. I mentioned this in passing last week and had a number of comments like, is that true? Is that, is that actually true? So I thought I'd open in, with an illustration regarding this. The, the, the Holy Bible is the most sold book in all of history. And as I mentioned last week, it's not even close for a second. The Bible has sold north of 6.7 billion copies with a B. B is in boy, billion. Second place is 900 million. Still a lot of books, not even close. Second place is uh, the quotations from Chairman Mao by Mao Zedong, 900 million. Third place, the Quran, 800 million. 6.7, north of that now, 6.7 billion copies of the scriptures sold to date. Uh, book series, if you're wondering, now we're just going down a rabbit hole because that's what I did this week. <laughs> J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter, the most winning most sold book series in, of all time, north of 650 million copies. As of 2018, at least, it was translated into 85 languages. It not only set the record for most books sold, but also fastest in the sales, the fastest to get to those records. The last four books of the series each set the records for fastest selling books of all time, only being defeated by the subsequent book in the series. Specifically book seven, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows sold over 15 million copies in less than 24 hours. In a time, if you were there and lived through it, when reading was kind of in a lull in the West. It's interesting. I say all that 
because before the middle of the 20th century, Mao Zedong and the Quran did not hold second and third place. The Holy Bible was still there in first place, not even close to a second. But the second place holder was, until the middle of the 20th century, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's still number six all time. But until the middle of the 20th century, it was the Holy Scriptures, not even close with the second, but the second, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, and not even a close third. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, if you're not aware of that, John Bunyan was a Puritan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress in 1678. And Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It's, it's, it happens in the dream of a character. It's an allegory of the Christian life. The main character is Christian. It's a, he, he's, he's a character portraying all of us Christians journeying through life as he battles Doubting Castle and the Slough of Despond and atheism and temptations to worldliness and, and all of these things. It's also been a book that I've regularly revisited. Um, I, I, I tried to do it yearly, but I, it's been more like every other year. This is the copy I've been working through. This is just the, the old language. It's hard to get through. The, the, the 1678 language. It's kind of rough. There's updated modern versions of this, but if there's anything telling that it's still the, the sixth most sold book in all of history is these have all three come out in the last five years for children. This is a poetic retelling of Pilgrim's Progress. Every two lines rhyme throughout the entire book, and it doesn't get old. My kids, we listen to it on audiobook because they sing and, and, and go along with it. Uh, it's called The Pilgrim's Progress, a poetic retelling of John Bunyan's classic tale. It's fantastic. But that's not our favorite. In our household, we do this one every year. It's uh, Little Pilgrim's Big Journey. This, we, we read it two years ago when it came out. This is the first book that at the time, my six, five, and three-year-old sat for the entire chapter every night glued to the chapters of the book. The illustrations are beautiful. It's a wonderful retelling of, of Bunyan's part one of the Pilgrim's Progress. If, that's, if, if you got slightly older kids, this is Pilgrim's Progress retold as if Christian were a bunny. So it's like Red Wall or Green Embers meets uh, Pilgrim's Progress. This was published by Moody Press, I think right around the, the COVID shutdown time. But this is another good one. They're, they're, they're popping up all over. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress until the middle of the 20th century, the second most sold book right behind Bunyan's prized possession, the Holy Scriptures. I mention that because one of my favorite scenes in John Bunyan's story is the fireplace scene. If, if you've read the story, the main character, again, his name is Christian, he comes to a place where he sees a fire burning in a fireplace in a wall. And there's a person standing next to the fire pouring water on the fire to put it out. But no matter what this person doing, pouring water on the fire, no matter what he can do, the fire just burns higher and hotter. When he sees this, Christian asks a character next to him called Interpreter, who tells him the answers. Christian asks Interpreter, what does this mean? The Interpreter answers, this fire is the work of grace that is begun in the heart of a believer. He that casts water upon it to extinguish it and put it out is the devil. But in that you see the fire, no matter what, burns higher and hotter, you shall also see the reason for that. And so interpreter then brings Christian to the other side of the wall. They go behind the wall, behind the fireplace, 
And there, Christian sees, excuse me, Christian sees a man, some of the translations of Bunyan's work puts the M as a capital M, man, with a bowl of oil in his hand. And this man, although secretly, is casting this oil into the fire behind the wall to keep it burning. Interpreter then teaches Christian the meaning of that when he says, this is the work of Christ, who continually, with the oil of his grace, maintains the work that has begun in the heart, by means of which, no matter what the devil can do, the souls of Christ's people prove gracious still. It's a beautiful part in the story because it speaks of a Christian doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints. A doctrine of perseverance. It, it speaks of the reality that all who are truly united to Christ by faith will persevere till the end. They will endure through life until, to use Bunyan's words, we reach the celestial city, glory. And that's a rock solid truth that I hope to show us this morning from a text that at first is like, oh, I don't, what you just read seemed like fall away language, apostasy language. You would be right. That doesn't contradict anything that I've just said. The rock solid foundation that those united to Christ, truly united to Christ by faith, will make it to the end. But there is one question that remains for our time together. How? How? How is it that Christians are supposed to make it through life? How are we to endure until glory? And why does it appear that some don't? What are the means, what are the ways in which we are meant to persevere in faith until the end? That's going to be our time this morning. Our text answers those questions for us in a helpful way, I think. And again, as I mentioned, this is a text that's been near and dear to my heart and my ministry. So I want us to see that Hebrews 3 is holding out for us the reality that the authenticity of our relationship with Christ will be confirmed, will be confirmed, it will be proved, it will be shown to be true by our holding on to Christ. The authenticity of one's relationship with Jesus will be confirmed by one's holding on to Jesus. And I hope that this will be practical and encouraging and a good New Year reminder for us this morning. But first, let me remind you of the context of Hebrews, just to do this briefly so we're all on the same page. We don't know the author of Hebrews. If anyone tells you that we know the author of Hebrews, don't believe them. Uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. There's some good guesses, but we're not sure. What we are sure of is that the author of Hebrews is writing this letter. Some believe it was a, a sermon pinned. Um, believe that, that, that Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. It's a believing community of Christians who were once Jewish, and they are coming under fire for their relationship with Jesus. For saying Christ is Lord, later in the book we learn they're being sawn in two, beheaded, tarred, destroyed, their, their property's being plundered, they're being thrown into prison. What do you think their temptation is? Their temptation is to walk away from Jesus and go back to Judaism because the Jewish religion was safe and legal. Nobody was getting beheaded over there. These Jewish Christians are being tempted to walk away from Jesus and return to their old ways, their old ceremonies, because they'd stopped being beheaded. 
And that's why the author of Hebrews goes to great lengths to show why Jesus is better, why Jesus is greater. The encouragement of the author of Hebrews is don't. Keep holding on to Jesus, even if you lose your head. Stay close to Jesus. Hold on to Christ, even if your wife is sawn in two. Hold on to Jesus. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the old covenant. He's better than the sacrifices. He's the best high priest there ever was. Greater, greater, better, better. Jesus is better. Hold on, friends. And God does indeed call us as believers in the 21st century to persevere, to to hold on, just like he's encouraging this first century group. And I think he's given us three grace-filled motivations, grace-filled efforts, if you will. Grace-filled means by which we persevere. And we're going to take them in order, verse 12, 13, 14. Each verse holds one out to us. And I want to move quickly through one and three and spend most of our time in verse 13, point two. So that's where we're headed. So first, verse 12 holds out to us personal vigilance. Verse 12 again says, take care, brothers, that could be brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We're beginning from the outset here. One, it starts with an attention getter. Take care. It's the word look or behold. Pay attention. Wake up. Look. Brothers, brothers and sisters, all I'm mentioning there is that these are Christians he's writing to. The danger of hardness of heart and falling away from the living God is a believing community. He's talking to Christians, brothers, sisters. And notice the, the flow of the verse, though. After this attention getter, pay attention, brothers and sisters, this pastoral note. What are we supposed to pay attention to? An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The end result here is falling away. And the root cause of that is unbelief. An unbelief. Notice what Hebrews calls unbelief. Evil. Evil. And I'm saying this, and maybe you're hearing this, with faces in your mind, in your mind's eye. This isn't abstract. This isn't just out there theology. This is nice. Perseverance of the saints. Let's do our theology this morning. I have faces in my mind of people who made a shipwreck of their life and their faith. The Lord got a hold of me on my way into high school, and uh, I was an immature, crazy young man at the time, but that youth group was vital to my life when my family life was falling apart. It was a decently sized youth group of probably about 100 high schoolers. I can count on two hands the amount of them are that are walking with Jesus today. I don't know if that's normal across youth groups. I don't know. I have all sorts of people who looked and smelled and talked like Christians. Some of them who were deeply influential in my life, who turned their back on Christ. Some of, two of them have died in their sin. And unless there was something that happened, their eternity is grim. Now, this, was, this is with weight that I'm saying this. This is a serious thing going on here. Take care. Pay attention. Do not give in to doubt and unbelief. There will be people who look like Christians, smell like believers, who leave the faith. But here's the point. That didn't happen overnight. In all of those cases of the people and the faces that I have in my mind, none of them went to bed on fire for Jesus and woke up the next morning like, "Ah, I'm done with him. 
There was a slow drip of unbelief over time, a strong doubt that took deeper root, a repeated asking the question that Eve, or the serpent asked Eve in the garden, did God really say that? It's just resurfacing in our present moment. It's just called deconstruction. It's just what our text is going to call apostasy. No one falls away overnight, friends. This falling away happens because you're not guarding your heart against unbelief. And you're not dealing with unbelief when it does arise, because I think it's, it's, it's there in all of us, when you're trying to do it alone. But that's my second point. This, this text is starting from the outset. See unbelief the way God does, evil, and guard your hearts against it. Fight against it. Be, be vigilant against unbelief. Not only do people not fall away overnight, but institutions and organizations don't drift overnight. I'm going to get myself in trouble with this one. Most of the Ivy League schools on the, the east coast of our country started as stalwart Christian organizations for the training of men and women. Harvard was one of them. Princeton was the Presbyterian training ground, decimated by unbelief. No semblance of, of biblical Christianity anymore. Our denomination broke away from the, the larger Presbyterian group in 1973. Why? Because the Presbyterian church, now called USA, compromised the gospel. They lost the faith. They gave in to unbelief and made an oblivion of their denomination. The Episcopalian church, Anglican Church of North America, and Anglican Church overseas is starting to head that way. The Roman Catholic Church just started something a little weird a couple weeks ago. The Methodist Church didn't, didn't slide into unbelief overnight. Friends, unbelief is serious. Guard against it. Personal vigilance, personal effort is required of our own hearts. I'm reminded of the wisdom of Proverbs 4, verse 23, which says, keep your heart with all vigilance. That's where I got the word for this point. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. God intends you, God intends Taylor to make it through life with much vigilance, through watchfulness, through grace-empowered effort, not through coasting. Our hearts are very similar to that instrument right there. I was really tempted to put it on and actually do this illustration live, but I won't do that. A guitar is, is musicians, if you've played with guitar or any really stringed instruments, you would know how quickly those things can go out of tune. In a household with four children under eight, it happens quicker than normal because those little mini-me's twist the knobs, which is unhelpful. But sometimes it's just the battering of life. If you're traveling with it a lot, the changing in temperatures, a simple bump, children turning the knobs, that guitar can go from sounding beautiful like it did just a few moments ago to being grotesque and, and, and nasty. Sometimes nothing needs to happen, but Joe just needs to not play and touch that guitar for a period of time. And it will go out of tune. Time just goes by, unattended, that thing will go out of tune. In the same way, our hearts are like that guitar. Whether it's the trials of life, whether it's the disappointments of things, persecution, or, or temptations, or sometimes just time going by in which you're not attending your heart, we will go out of tune from Christ. We will be knocked off into unbelief and doubt. Friends, resist the urge. Take 
heed. Take care. Resist unbelief. All I'll say here in application, I think as we conclude a new year and are beginning a new one, I wonder if there's a God-given way for us to take care of our own hearts, to be aware personally of our own hearts. And it's a strikingly ordinary answer. I think God has given us what we call the ordinary, personal means of grace. Your times, Monday through Saturday, in which you meet with Jesus in the word, meditating on the scriptures, and prayer. You might add things like fasting and silence and solitude are all important personal things that we can do through the week just to posture ourselves to be with Jesus. Those are great ways to be aware of the condition of our heart. That was the first one. Take care, verse 12, gives us a, a, a means by which we persevere. It is personal vigilance over our own hearts. But now we're arriving at the, the meat and really, really where I wanted to get for our time this morning. That is the second thing. Verse 13, and that's mutual encouragement. Verse 13 says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now we're transitioning to what we might call a corporate reality. I kept point one pretty individual, and I don't want to reverse any of that. That's still important, but we're now arriving at the big thing. The, what we could call our, our communal component of growth in Christ-likeness. The, the together, the y'all aspect of not falling away in our Christian life. It's mutual encouragement. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a beautiful weight to this verse, but, a, but it's, a, it's a privilege as well. And what I mean by that is this. You need me. And I need you. If we're expected to make it through life to glory, to the celestial city, we need the other people in this room. And if you're, well, if you're visiting with us here this Sunday at New City, I welcome you in the name of Jesus. What I'm saying applies to wherever you go, your church, back home, wherever that might be. You need other people in your life. I, I don't know if this will step on toes or not, but Christianity is not me and Jesus it's not me and Jesus and my Bible on my bed. As, as much as I just pressed on the, the personal means of grace just a minute ago, that's not the end. We are saved from our sin and from death and from hell, but we've been saved by Christ to something, a people, a y'all reality, a temple in which we are stones, a family, brothers and sisters. I could go through all the images of the church in the New Testament. It's all y'all realities. And you're in, if you're in your Bible tomorrow, when you arrive at a you, Y-O-U in the Bible, it's the vast majority of the time, those are plural yous. Y'all are the body of Christ. Y'all make up the household of God. Y'all, 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 or whatever other second person plural you prefer. I'm going with y'all this morning. We were not created to live in isolation. But what are we to do? Verse 13 tells us, I've been using the word encourage, and you're like, where's that in the text? Verse 13 says, but exhort one another every day. That word exhort, if you're a note taker, you can circle it, underline it, do whatever you gotta do to that. That's the word encourage. It's translated in the ESV elsewhere as encourage. I do understand why the ESV goes with exhort, exhort over encourage, because I think in our modern vernacular, encourage just has kind of turned into nice shoes. I'm just saying niceties. 
flattery. That's not what we're talking about. Biblical encouragement or exhortation is the word to come alongside someone and urge them. To come alongside someone and appeal to them. To meet someone and encourage them. We're speaking now of the giving and receiving life-sustaining words. Giving and receiving faith-building encouragement. That's what we're supposed to do. Encourage. When? How often? Oh, glad you asked. Verse 13 tells us, as long as it's called today, every moment you get, every day, every moment you're available, whenever you can, as often as you're able, every chance you get, offer encouragement. Exhort your brothers and sisters. Friends, other people are a means by which you will resist becoming hardened. You are a God-ordained means by which I will resist deception. I told you it's weighty, but it's also, this is exciting. My words give life to people, and your words give life to other people. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. In his fourth chapter of Ephesians, he says this. I can't remember if I put it in your insert. I did. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. And notice this, so that it may give grace to those who hear. You catch that? Give words, okay, build up, that's nice. No, 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 no. Your words give grace to people. Not salvific grace. We're not talking about sin forgiveness here. We're talking about power, grace, strength to keep going. Your words give grace to others. And that grace given to others helps them hold on to Jesus. Isn't this beautiful? Community is necessary for your Christian life. Paul elsewhere in Romans 12.10 says, doesn't use this same word, but it's the concept that, that matters. He says, love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I think we've mentioned this before, Roger and myself from, from the pulpit. That I think that's the only time we're encouraged to compete against one another in Scripture. Outdo each other. It's a competition. How you doing? Outdo one another in showing honor, giving encouragement, building up. If it's a competition, friends, how are you doing? What's your, your score, your grade, your, 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 your podium? I don't want to overdo this illustration of making it super competitive, but outdo one another in showing honor is, is a... That's an amazing encouragement. And I think the, the reason why is equally important. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why is this mutual encouragement so important? Why is this sermon how we're ending the year and beginning 2024? Because deception, friends, deception is 
tricky. I have not, and I don't think you have either. I don't think you have met anyone in life who is deceived and knows they're deceived. Am I right on that? That's the tricky part of deception. You don't know you're deceived. When you're in the midst of deception, you think you're right. That's why deception is so tricky, and that's why it's called a hardening of the deceitfulness of sin. And I've noticed the deceitfulness of sin in about 10 years of pastoral ministry in a number of ways. I've just jotted down a couple bullet points here. Why is deception so tricky? Well, one, because we don't recognize it. But compounded with the trickiness of sin, deception is dangerous because we justify our sin. I know I have. I know I shouldn't have done that or said that, but anybody else? got an amen that counts I know it's wrong but and usually that one happens especially with those closest to you we justify our sin friends sometimes we just fail to recognize our sin we're walking in something that is unhelpful and destructive to us and we're not seeing it clearly we need other people to let us know I wouldn't do that I wouldn't watch that I don't think you should you should go that way or our our love for Christ can go grow cold I love that Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote that often, he said, oftentimes the Christ in other people is greater, stronger than the Christ in me. Sometimes seeing other people warms my own heart for Jesus when I see your love for Jesus. We can tend to doubt. Connecting this back to verse 12, doubt is in all of us, right? I made a big deal of unbelief being evil. It is. But if we're being honest, most of us have wrestled, warred with unbelief and doubt in our own hearts, haven't we? We tend to cover up our sins. This is a little different than just not knowing and recognizing your sin. This is one, oh, I sinned. I'm going to cover this one up, though. Sweep, swipe that one away. Let a week go by and we'll forget about it. Community helps us see that that's not the way. I can list off a number of other reasons, but friends, deception is tricky. That's why we need mutual encouragement. We need fresh eyes of trusted brothers and sisters around us who know us as well as we know ourselves to speak into our lives. I think that's why uh, I, did, I, I came onto this late in the week, so I didn't get it in your, your insert. But Hebrews 10 is another important passage connected to this. You know the verse probably. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 say this, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Pause. Right? That's the one of the the go to church verses. You're not to neglect meeting together. You, you, You are to meet together. The day is drawing near. We are to get together as God's people, gather together. That with Hebrews 3 is one of the reasons why scholars believe that the early church was gathering every day and that the Lord's Day on Sunday was just the celebration and party together, but they were getting together regularly. He's saying, don't neglect that. Don't neglect meeting together. What do you think should come next? Brothers and sisters, don't neglect meeting together, but meet together, right? That would make sense. Don't neglect meeting together. Meet together. You know what he says? Do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And it's the same word as Hebrews 3. The reason we don't neglect meeting together 
The reason we don't skip church, try to travel on Sundays between nine and noon, I don't know why. The reason we don't take personal days on Sunday mornings is for the encouragement of others. When we skimp on community, when we skip out on church, we're robbing other people of our life-giving words that will help them persevere in faith to glory. It's incredibly selfish. Because they need you and you need them. We need the giving and receiving of life-giving words. I'm drawn here to an illustration I've used once before from a Peanuts cartoon. Think, you can think of the, the, like Charlie Brown. And you can find this scene on YouTube if you just use some of these keywords I'm going to share. But there's a scene in this Peanuts episode where uh, Lucy, strong-willed Lucy, comes into the room and she demands that Linus change the television channel. Sounds like a normal day in our household. Even down to the Lucy aspect. But she, uh, Lucy comes in and she threatens to use her fist if Linus is not compliant. Linus says, what makes you think you can march in here and demand that? Who are you to just take over? And Lucy says, these five fingers. (laughs) Individually, they are nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. And my favorite part is Linus then, after that, he says, what channel do you want? <laughs> but he, Linus then turns to his own hand and looks at his fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? Individually, friends, one Christian is limited in what we can do. We are limited in what we can accomplish, and we're on shaky ground when it comes to making it to glory. But when joined together as a local church, as community, as believers, we form a weapon to use Lucy's words that is terrible to behold. There is power in community. There is power in one another. Encourage one another as long as it is called today. Friends, the problem in our life and in my life is the tendency towards individuality. And that unhelpful word, Independence. Individuality, new city, independence will likely kill you. We need brothers and sisters around us to link arms with us and say, let's go. We're going to do life together. I'm not going to make it through life without you, so let's go. You're not going to make it through life without me, so let's go. And I'm going to fall. When I fall, I'm going to need you. When you fall, I got your back. And the way we do that, the way we do the linking arms and the the journeying, the the battling through life is through the giving and receiving of life-giving words. We're talking about encouragement. Taking specific time to see God at work in other people and telling them. Family of churches I came from called these evidences of grace. We're looking for evidences of God's grace in other people and we're gonna identify it with specificity and tell them. We're gonna build them up with our words. We're gonna show them honor by taking the time to do that. What is the problem with all of that? 
It takes time. You have to have eyes to see. You gotta be around others and you gotta open your mouth. You have to be around others if you're gonna build them up. We need to have eyes to see one another and eyes to see signs, evidences of God's grace in their life and in their heart and in their walk. And then we need to speak it to them, friends. All of that takes intentionality, effort, and time. And I would encourage you, maybe more than anything, in this upcoming year to do exactly that. Get around your people. Make a community group. Make an accountability or DNA group. Study the scriptures or just get together and read big chunks of the scriptures with other people and take time to see them, identify things in their life, and tell them. We're not talking flattery. We're talking about real deep encouragement that will give life to their souls. All right, we're going to land this plane with verse 14, our third and final grace-filled encouragement by which we make it through life, and that is gospel, gospel tenacity. This is going to be a very brief point as we come to the table. Verse 14 says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is where I'm kind of getting my my main thesis for our time together, my main argument. And this is where I think there's more beauty in this verse than we're realizing at first. Because this verse is giving us the unshakable, the rock-solid foundation that you, in Christ, will make it. How is it doing that? Well, this verse is saying my main argument. That the authenticity of your relationship with Jesus is confirmed by your holding on to Jesus. That is that we have come to share in Christ. That's speaking of uh, of being genuinely converted. A born-again Christian who is united to Jesus. The language theologically we use for that is union with Christ. Those united to Christ, we have come to share in Christ. We have come to be united with Christ if we hold on. Our holding on to Jesus proves that we were united to Jesus. Our perseverance is evidence of conversion. This verse and these verses and Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 are not speaking of those genuinely united to faith, falling away to utter destruction and experiencing hell, though they were once in Christ by faith. But these verses are a real warning to the church, real warning to us that apostasy is real. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's not losing one's salvation. I know this is debated theological stuff. I'm happy to talk about this more. But again, what I've been saying, that there are going to be those who look, smell, and sound like Christians, but will ultimately fall away and prove they were not of God. They were what scriptures call that terrifying word, covenant breakers. We persevere through personal vigilance, verse 12, through mutual encouragement, the big one, one another, and we persevere with the gospel. We've come to share in Christ. It's him that we hold. It's him that we behold. It's him that we love and cherish. The good news of Jesus' life lived in our place, his death on the cross where he absorbed our punishment for sin. His triumphant and glorious resurrection from the dead is the news that saves us and it's the news that keeps us. We don't get in through that news and then graduate from the gospel to more deep philosophical things. 
The gospel gets us, and the gospel keeps us, and the gospel is what the angels and saints in glory are singing about right now. One pastor worded it this way. He was talking about Christmas last week. This would have been a great great quote for my sermon last Sunday, but he said the greatest threat to Christmas, and I would say the greatest threat to the Christian life, is not actually secularism or consumerism. Both are dumpster fires, but that, that's not the, the ultimate, the greatest threat to the Christian life. That's not consumerism or secularism, but our own boredom with the most thrilling story ever told. That's the most dangerous threat to my heart, is getting bored with Jesus. Lived, crucified, risen, prophesied long before secured for us, reigning in glory now in heaven. Friends, look to Jesus. See Jesus. We do, as I've been arguing throughout the time, need to recognize that the authenticity of our relationship with Christ is confirmed by our holding on to Christ. But that is vital, that is true. But the deepest and most encouraging thing to us and our hope is not actually in our hold on Jesus, though we have to hold on. Our hope is, is in his grasp on us. And it is good news, encouraging news, empowering news to know that he doesn't let go. He holds his own. So as we go to the table, a table of the gospel, a table of Jesus, a mutual table, hear the words of John chapter 10, our ultimate comfort in the reality that Christ holds us. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one is able to snatch them out of my hands. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of his hands. I and the father are one. Friends, our ultimate hope and our position of security and assurance is in Jesus holding on to us. And if you are in Christ by faith, he's got you and he's not letting go of you. And that is good news. Good news that we need to be reminded of at the table. As we come to the table, we do this every week at New City because we come and and receive bread to ourselves, symbolizing the body of Jesus given for us and either red wine or white grape juice, symbolizing the blood of Jesus that purchased us, that redeems us and that keeps us. This is another sermon preached to our our smell and taste and touch. The way we do it here at New City is we're going to have a song. We're going to sing a song over you over the next couple of minutes.